we want to turn our attention to Romans chapter 9. If you're visiting, we're making our way through this whole book. This, this is a long letter by the Apostle Paul, a very loved letter of the, of the Bible. And we're in chapter 9, beginning in verse 14. And if you don't have a Bible, you can just follow there in the, uh, in the bulletin. If you're visiting, you've heard us probably refer to community, community groups, these home groups that we've uh, really had from the beginning. And several years ago, in, uh, in mine and Dana's group, I can't remember the context, but somebody made an observation, and I had never thought about this, and then once they said it, it just, I, I, I see it everywhere now. This person said, have you ever noticed how in advertising, people constantly say that you deserve something about almost anything? And as soon as, I mean, I'd heard that, but when she pointed it out, I just started seeing it and hearing it everywhere. The kitchen you deserve, the carpet you deserve. I, I just, I started Googling these, just, just slotting in different things like the limousine you deserve. I got hits on that, the limousine you deserve. And that's just, uh, it, it's just kind of in the warp and the woof of, of how advertising works. And because it's kind of in the warp and the woof of how we think about ourselves. That uh, it's not just that it would be nice for me to have a you know, highly functional, really spiffy kitchen, but like I deserve to have a highly functioning, spiffy kitchen. And what I want to look at going into this passage is a much, much, much bigger topic, and that is the mercy of God. And I want to ask a fundamental question. Do we deserve God's mercy? Just at a fundamental level. Or you might modify the question a little bit and, and ask, uh, does everybody, just simply by being a human being, does everybody deserve at least kind of a shot at God's mercy? Does everybody deserve a, a shot at heaven at the end? And man, there has been a lot of debate on that in the history of the church. And... Um, a lot of disagreement, a lot of ink spilled, denominations have split over how you answer that question. And I would never want to hang anything that I say on one passage, one verse, but this is a critical passage for that question. Let me say a word about the context, and then I'm going to read it. Um, last week, we looked at the first part of Romans 9, and Paul is talking about Israel, how special Israel was and is. And that he, he just set his particular love and gave these particular gifts to Israel. Not to Philistines, not to Egyptians, not to Babylonians, to Israel as a, as a people. And then, even in that group, there was still election. That it wasn't just enough that I'm descended from Abraham, so everything's fine. Abraham has these two sons. God chooses Isaac, but not Ishmael, his brother. Uh, go down a generation. God chooses Isaac. Excuse me, God chooses uh, Jacob, but not Esau. And, and Paul's really good about anticipating what you're thinking as you're reading what he wrote. And, and, he, and he sort of heads them off at the pass or addresses them. And so, you know, he can, he can just picture people going, I just don't know how fair that is, you know? Like you make Esau, but you pick his brother. Or you make this, this nation, this people group... But you pick this one particular, how is that fair? How is that just? And so Paul raises the question for us, is this fair? And who does receive the mercy of God? 
And why them and not someone else? It's a very personal question. I mean, it's, it's big, but it's just as real as if, if, if you are a Christian and you have seen God's mercy in your life and you've kind of sat back and wondered, why would He do that with me and not this person over here who really is kinder or a better member of our family or a better friend? or a more charitable, giving person in the community, why would He do that with me and not them? Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist His will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we always need You to shed light uh, upon Your Word, and we always need You to shed light into us and to shine light where we don't want to see or don't want to go. So we pray now together that You would open up Your Word to us, but also open up our hearts to it and to You, and that we would see something that doesn't make us back away from You but draws us to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a scholar by the name of Nathan Hatch, and he, uh, his background is as an academician. And he's now the president of Wake Forest University up the road, but um, you know, did, did scholarly work before he became president. And about 25 years ago, he wrote a book, has an academic-sounding title, it's called The Democratization of American Christianity. All right? The Democratization of American Christianity. And what he unpacks, goes into some depth about, is how early Christianity in early America pretty quickly absorbed these early American values. And it was things like democracy and voting and how you know, we're not a monarchy and you're no better than me. And my vote counts just as much as, as your vote. And so he talks about things like, now again, you may have heard what I'm about to say. If you're not from a church background, you, you probably haven't. 
But, you know, he talks about language like, hey, when it comes to you and your soul, God has a vote and the devil has a vote and you've got the deciding vote. And he just says, I, we're kind of the first place anyone's ever said that. That that's a very American way of framing it. It's a very American way of communicating. And he says that one of the just earliest targets of opposition in American Christianity was the doctrine that God, as king over everything, is sovereign even over every person's eternal destiny. I mean, nothing could be more jarring to a democratic culture, to a vote culture, to a very individualistic culture, and I craft my own life. Nothing could be more jarring than to say, the sovereign king, that sounds like British That sounds like what we revolted against. There's a sovereign king with the power to determine our eternal future. Now, whatever term you want to call this, and we could use very biblical words for this, election, that came up in the passage last week, the doctrine of election, not political elections, God electing to save a people, to save a person, to show them mercy, You could use the biblical word predestination. Before time, before the creation, God destining a people for salvation. Whatever term you want to use, uh, man, to just state the obvious, it has created a ton of discussion and a ton of disagreement in the history of the church. It, It pushes you to ask questions. And I've seen in my own life, when people start talking about this, people who disagree, sometimes almost the entire discussion are questions. Well, what do you do with the passage that says blah, blah, blah? Well, what do you do with the passage that says blah, blah, blah? (laughs) Question, 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 question. And it struck me when I was looking at this passage that it's loaded with questions. I don't know if you noticed that when we read it. Verse 14 starts with two questions. And then you get to this second paragraph from 19 to 24 is nothing but questions. Six questions in a row. So I want to frame the sermon that way in terms of two big questions. And let's, let's call it, number one, the question of God's justice. And then secondly, the question of humanity's role. So the question of God's justice and the question of humanity's role. All right. First off, the question of God's justice. Now, you, you heard this a little bit, a little while ago. But again, why, I mean, is Paul just kind of riding along and then deciding, hey, I think now I'm going to drop a theological hydrogen bomb into your lives? No, there's, there's a context for why he brings this up. Why? 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 I mean, we want to know why. Why set Israel apart and make it special rather than these other nations? Great if you're an Israelite. Pretty crummy if you're a Philistine. And, and Israel gave him plenty of reasons not to be treated that way. Why? Or the patriarchs, why select Abraham? Why select Isaac? Why select Jacob when they individually did things that would make him not want to pick them? Why? And really the question is, is this fair? Now he's using the word just or justice, but look in verse 14. This is is the big question on the table. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And he says a strong no... And he, and he unpacks it. And, he, and he's highlighting two things that God does. 
Now, I want you to think in terms of God actively, you know, active verbs, God actively doing two things. First off, that He shows mercy. Now, the English translation, the way it expresses it is has mercy or shows mercy. In Greek, mercy is the verb. He mercies people. He mercies someone. shows up four times from verses 15 to 18 that if, if someone is going to live with God in heaven and know Him on this side of death, really know Him and be in relationship with Him, God is going to have to show them mercy. And if you are visiting and you haven't been here for this whole series, let me just give a shorthand version of this. If you go back to the early part of Romans, the the second half of chapter 1 and then all of chapter 2 and then the first part of chapter 3 are what we could call the bad news. And Paul just says in, in no uncertain terms, look, it doesn't matter what your background is and it doesn't matter if you're Jewish or you're Gentile. We have disobeyed God. We show up with hearts that are not right with Him. We deserve, and there's that word, we deserve God's justice. And to echo something that Tim uh, Tim said, we said that in the membership vow. To join this church, do you agree with the fact that you're justly deserving of His displeasure and you're without hope save in what? His sovereign mercy. So, so far so good. If you've been reading Romans, it makes total sense. If I'm going to have a relationship with God, if I'm going to go to heaven one day, He will have to actively do things unnaturally on my insides for that to happen and things in history for that to happen. So far so good. Then there's the second verb. Now what's that? Look in verse 18. So then He has mercy... He mercies on whomever He wills, so far so good, and He hardens whomever He wills. And in English and in the original Greek, that's an active verb. Now, that that sure sounds like it's saying, in the same way that God would actively reach inside to someone's heart and do things to bring about a certain conclusion, the same way He reaches inside them, actively does something to get them to heaven... Is he, I mean, let's just be blunt. Is he actively reaching inside and rewiring things and changing things to make someone perish? To to make someone end up in destruction? Now, something that's helpful here, if we'll see it, is look at what Paul quotes the verse before that. Look at verse 17. He says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, now, this is the Pharaoh. In the Exodus story, the Israelites in slavery in Egypt, he won't let them go. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Now, why does Paul bring that up? If you look in the Exodus account, the language goes back and forth between saying, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It says that multiple times. But it also says, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And it seamlessly moves back and forth. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. How does that help us? What what do we do with that? You know, I've brought this up before, but I'm in a a long militaristic campaign against my backyard right now. And 
it's labor intensive, and I think I think the scales have. I think we had our D Day actually recently, and the scales have tipped in my direction. But um, a big project this summer was we had this old dog pen from the prior residence, concrete slab link fence. So we cut the fence down, busted up the concrete with sledgehammers, and uh, hauled off the concrete. So we ended up on the spot with, for the first time since we've lived there, this big rectangle of bare dirt. Now, that was early to midsummer that we cleared it. What do you think was there by the end of the summer? Weeds, of course, because we live in like a subtropical kind of climate. What did I do? In, in other words, you could accurately say, I grew weeds. I actively grew weeds this summer on that plot in my backyard. How did I actively grow weeds? I actively grew weeds by doing what? Nothing. I actively cultivated weeds by not intervening and letting just a plot of ground in South Carolina in the summer do what it naturally does. How does God actively harden a heart? He simply does not intervene that in the same way that soil with any fertility and rain and just South Carolina climate is just a growing environment for weeds, our hearts in a fallen world without God's intervention is just a perfect atmosphere for rebellion. And it may be a big splashy rebellion. It may be a really cute moral rebellion. But it's rebellion. So here's where that leaves us. What do people get from God at the end? All human beings. They either get the justice that is owed us. They either get the justice that is owed us, that we, strictly speaking, deserve, or they get mercy that is not owed us but that God is free to extend in His goodness. But no one ever gets injustice. No one ever gets, biblically speaking, non-fairness. Because God must be just. Either we get the justice we deserve, or Christ gets the justice we deserve. But God is unjust with no one. Now, then there's this second question. All right, that's God's justice. What about humanity's role? Uh, I've already kind of said this, but Paul is really great about anticipating what you're thinking when you're reading what he's writing. He's kind of thinking ahead a step, anticipating how you're responding to it. So he anticipates how people hear this. And probably the way most folks are going to hear it is, well... All right, well then, here's, here's what you've just said. You've just said, unless an all-powerful God intervenes, the natural trajectory is that you perish. You rebel and you perish. Well then, why does He still judge people for rebelling if He doesn't intervene? In other words, if it's inevitable that you're going to deserve justice if I don't intervene, and then I don't intervene as God and then I hold you accountable for hardening your heart, 
How does that make sense? I mean, that's what's going to happen if he doesn't intervene. Why does he then fault them in the end? Let me read how he put it. Verse 19, You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Legitimate question. And I'll be honest with you and say that the answer that comes, which is in the form of a question is one of the most jarring responses to a question in the Bible. It's not what we wanted to hear. But I would also say this, that if we will open our hearts and listen, besides it being jarring, it may be one of the most reorienting things you've ever heard. Because there's about to be no doubt about the utter monarchy of God. That He is not on the hook with us and that He does not answer to us. Okay. How is this fair if He's in control? What's, what's the answer? Verse 20. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? We could put it this way, and Paul seems to be addressing this. Our hearts tend to run toward a question immediately. And I think this can be a compassionate question because we care about people. We want them to be okay in this life, and we want them to be okay forever. But the question that we tend to run to is, well, why doesn't He show mercy to everyone? He could. Why doesn't He show mercy to everyone? And what is Paul pushing on? He's pushing us to ask a different question. Instead of, why doesn't He show mercy to everyone? Because the subtext of that is almost, because everybody should have a shot. Because everybody deserves it which would be to change the very definition of mercy. If mercy is obligatory, it's not mercy. If it's owed, if it's a right, it's not mercy. Paul's pushing us to ask a different question. Instead of why, does, why doesn't he show mercy to everyone, to ask why does he show mercy to anyone? Why does he show mercy to anyone. And he expands a bit in verses 22 and uh, 23. Look at what he says. Almost to say, think about this from God's perspective. Now, we're very limited in being able to do that. But look in verse 22. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory? for vessels of mercy. Think about it this way. Uh, I had a DPCer tell me just a few days ago that he, his identity was stolen. And he got the dreaded call from the credit card company and they said, are you on a spending spree in Maryland right now? And he said, um, no, no I'm not. I'm sitting in Greenville. So thankfully they caught it and um, you know, just immediately you lean into it, shut down that card, alert these people immediate action. What, what would you think 
of someone who got the notification that your identity has been stolen, someone's using your credit card, debit card, and they said, well, why don't we wait for a bit and just let them spend? And let's let them spend, and hopefully that's going to communicate uh, a generosity and that I'm for them and that I'm not trying to rush to get them in trouble. And maybe as they see that, they'll, um, they'll reconsider and they'll stop, stop abusing these resources. We would think, you're an idiot. They are going to spend you out of house and home. Now, that makes, you know, that makes sense if it's our money. But have we considered that is planet Earth? That the Earth is peopled with us with human beings to whom God gives every good thing, every resource that we have comes from His hand. He knows who will never turn to Him and continues to give good things, be that friendships or meals or beautiful falls or whatever, knowing that the person who's going to yell His name in vain is going to draw His oxygen, and He provides it, into the lungs that He made, that He keeps working at night when they're not thinking about it. To curse His night. He knows that. But the early part of Romans says what? Romans 2 says, you know, are, are human beings, are we going to presume upon the patience, the forbearance of God, not knowing that it's His kindness that leads you to repent? That the way God moves people and expresses His desire that they repent is not Him flexing His muscles and there's just disaster all the time everywhere, worst case scenarios every day. It's His day in, day out provision and kindness and patience. How does this land with you? To some of you, you've heard, you have categories for what we're talking about this morning. For some of you, this is brand new and it may be just blowing, kind of blowing your mind. Um, let's think about a few things. Number one, if, if you're just, if, the, if your insides right now are going, I, I just, this is upsetting me. I don't want God to be like that, and I don't want people's eternal destinies to be like that. I think it's a question mark. I don't think it's set. Well, I mean, I get that. Believe me. In fact, I, if you haven't felt that inside of you, I wonder if you've really dealt with this doctrine if you haven't looked around at the world and people you know and care about and it hasn't jostled your insides, have you really taken it seriously? But then here's the thing. You're, what are the alternatives? What are the alternatives? In other words, if, if you are a Christian and you have been the recipient of mercy, how do you answer the question of why have you received mercy? You could say, well, because I believed in Jesus. Why did you believe in Jesus? Well, because I heard it. Why did you respond to it when you heard it? Because a lot of people who hear it don't respond to it. I mean, you see that in the New Testament. Because I humbled myself. Why did you humble yourself? You're finally backed up to a point where you ha you've got one of two options. It was either something deep, 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 deep down about us that I had the good instincts to do this, or I thought about it clearly, or, uh, or I was brought up that way, 
or it was nothing inside of us and it was strictly by the grace of God and we're still left asking, then why would you be gracious to me and not this person? I mean, if an angel walks up to somebody in heaven and says, why are you here? Which would be intimidating. Why are you here? What is that person supposed to say? Because I believed in Jesus. Why did you believe in Jesus? He opened my eyes. Why did he open your eyes? Because I heard... I mean, finally, it backs up to the point of having to just say, He loved me. He loved me. Why did He love you that way? Not just His general love for creation, but saving, pursuing love. Why did He love you that way? Wouldn't we all have to say, I have no idea. In other words, Paul is pushing us to say it's either all grace or not. Like, all the grace of God. And the other concern can be this. You can be hearing this thinking, well, then why would you do evangelism? That's been a common question when people hear this. Why would you do missions? Why would you do evangelism if God has purpose to save a particular people and nobody's going to thwart His purposes and these people will be hardened and no one can thwart His purposes? Why do evangelism? Man, there's so many ways uh, to go with this. There was a guy who was an evangelist in early America, that period that Nathan Hatch wrote about, and he believed in God's election. And he traveled all over the place telling people about Jesus. And someone once asked him, who was critical of this, why are you going all over the place to tell people about Jesus when you believe that it's already set? Who's going to be saved and who won't be saved? And this is beautiful. Asa Hell Nettleton. Did I tell you that's his name? Asa Hell Nettleton? Uh, just tuck that away. Asa Hell Nettleton. Not a household name. Uh, he said, I've been very impacted by another evangelist. And this other evangelist said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Election. Sovereignty of God. Whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. And of course, what evangelist was he quoting? Jesus. That was our assurance of pardon. Um, And by the way, Romans 9 is followed by one of the greatest missionary calls in the Bible, Romans 10. The Apostle Paul, you know, just wasn't standing around at wine and cheese parties, you know, discussing Calvinism. He's going all over the world, getting beat up, shipwrecked, going without sleep, being hated to tell people about Jesus. And he he launches into why we do that right after Romans 9. But I want to end on this note, just a a more, at a a heart level, at a personal level. Um, I've I've mentioned this to some of you before, but earlier this year, I watched a romantic movie by accident. And the way this happened was it had been a long Sunday and just a big push and came in and kids were already down and Dana and I are just going to decompress and so we queue up Netflix and, you know, like, okay, what, what, what do we want to watch? And out of the blue, I said, somewhere in time. And this is a movie that came out in 1980 and I'll just tell you, like, it's a romantic movie. I don't mean necessarily over the top, but I just mean you've got to take all your cynical postmodern impulses and just flip them off. You know, like there's going to be string music. 
and prolonged eye contact, and we're just going to have to go with it, all right? So, but the reason that I thought about this movie was not like, ooh, I want a romantic movie right now, although there's a place for that, is I, uh, when I was about 11 years old, my family went on a trip, and we got to stay at the Grand Hotel on Mackinac Island, Michigan, spelled like Mackinac, but the locals say Mackinac. And that hotel is the setting for this movie. And on top of that, we got to that hotel the week after the crew had finished filming at the hotel. And I met the director in the airport when he was about to head out and we had just arrived. And he sat down with me and like explained the plot of the movie to me before before it ever came out. Sandwich popped in my mind, and, and I was just going to watch the first little bit and see the scenes of the, of the, uh, of the hotel, but I ended up watching the whole thing. That's the, by accident. But um, there's a scene in that movie that I forgot. It's very important. In this movie, this character Richard, played by Christopher Reeve, he, uh, he's staying at the Grand Hotel, and he goes in this little room that's right off the lobby, and it has memorabilia and old black and white photos, and he goes in there, and he's looking at old stuff, And then across the room, he sees a black and white photo of this beautiful woman. String music swelling. And so he slowly walks over to it. And it's uh, the character played by Jane Seymour. And it's just this beautiful face. And he becomes completely infatuated with her. Starts learning who she was, when she lived. And and he, he can't get her off his mind. He falls, he's starting to fall in love with her and she's dead. And so he finds a way to go back in time. Okay, this movie's been out for like 35 years, so he, he did go back in time. And they, they fall in love, whirlwind romance. She's an actress in, uh, in the movie. The scene that I'd forgotten is that uh, when they have fallen in love with, with each other, she's in a play at a local theater, and so Richard goes. So he's sitting in the audience, and he's watching her, and they're looking at each other adoringly. And then there's an intermission. So she goes backstage, and a photographer from the hotel is going to take her portrait because she's the famous, you know, actress staying there, and they want a record of it. Richard gets up out of his seat, and he goes backstage. And so she's posed for her photograph, and right before the photographer does the, you know, poof, the the old-fashioned photograph, right before he clicks it, Richard walks in, and she she sees him over the photographer, and this look comes on her face. And that's when the photograph was taken. And so, at that moment, what you realize is, when, when going back to that room, when he fell in love with her, just through her face, it wasn't just, wow, that's a, a beautiful woman. That's a fetching woman. But what he didn't know was, that's a beautiful woman looking at me before I was born. Like She's looking at him in love with him before he's born. And he fell in love with her. Um, what is the doctrine of election? I mean, is the doctrine of election, who can we keep out? I mean, when, when biblically instructed and biblically taught, isn't it that I thought when God worked in my life that I just... He opened my eyes and, and like, I need a Savior. And wow, there's, there's the Savior. And I need mercy and a good king. And wow, there's mercy and there's a good king. I mean, it felt like I just looked up and there he was. And I reached for him. 
And all that's true. But what I came to find out, and you don't have to believe this to be saved, but what I came to find out is like the face that He caused me to fall in love with was a face that was looking at me before I was born. He was looking at me lovingly and longingly before I was born. That's the face. And wouldn't you say that like that should make us really humble? Like if if we're even mildly self-aware and we know how we hurt people and how we disobey God and how we want to be comfortable more than we want to be holy, why would you look at me like that? And why would you not look at this guy over here who's so much nicer or kinder or more caring about the community or more faithful? Why would you look at me? I don't know. But it's humbling. And shouldn't it be fueled to want to tell other people about his face? That this is a face that can look at really, really sinful people and love them and be beautiful toward them and to long for them. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that, that you would take these uh, massive, weighty things and in many ways these severe truths and that you would cause them in our hearts not to be fuel for arrogance or being proud of ourselves for knowing anything, but you would make it to be fuel for humility and a burden for others and a worship of you who shows great mercy. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. One of the... Um...